Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants Podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? This week, we are talking about orchid bees, and really from the perspective of the bees, because they're doing something unique, they're doing something extremely complex, and they're shaping plants in the process. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Santiago Ramirez who has spent his entire career trying to understand the complexities of orchid bees and the plants they visit. Before I get to that, I just want to say, please consider supporting this podcast on Patreon. I could not be doing this podcast without the support of my patrons. They make this podcast possible. So if you've been listening for a short period of time or a long period of time, you have them to thank for it. But that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Let's get on with it because I don't want to keep you from this topic any longer. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Santiago Ramirez. I hope you enjoy. Santiago Ramirez, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has actually been a long time in the making, but you're here today. Welcome. Uh, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay, well, thank you, Matt, for having me. Um, so I am Santiago Ramirez. I am an evolutionary biologist, and I am a professor in the Department of Evolution and Ecology at the University of California, Davis. And our research focuses on plant pollinator interactions and, and how these interactions evolve. And in particular, we pay a lot of attention to chemical communication. So, mm -hmm. for example, we study the floral scent uh, that certain flowers produce and how those chemical signals attract different uh, bee species of, of pollinators. We also study uh, chemical communication between bees, in particular orchid bees. We investigate how um, these bees use chemical compounds to communicate with one another. Fascinating stuff. I love this system because it is so complex and so interesting, but it really does sell itself. It's extremely charismatic, even if you take a superficial look at it. And of course, research like yours tells us how cool it is. But where did this interest begin for you? I mean, were you always interested in orchids and orchid bees and chemical ecology, or did you kind of stumble into this system throughout education or some sort of career change, something like that? Yeah, so maybe we should go back to our early childhood. Uh, so I was born and raised in Colombia, South America. And, you know, I always had a, a strong interest in, in the natural world, animals and plants. Uh, from an early age, I, I was fascinated by, by animals and I was spent, spending a lot of time in, in outdoors doing, observing things. And uh, I study uh, um, biology at the Universidad, Universidad de Los Andes in, in Colombia. And as an undergrad, I was broadly interested in all kinds of animals like frogs and birds. And I worked on different projects. And towards the end of my undergrad degree, uh, I was required to do an honors thesis. That's basically a requirement for everybody. Mm. Um, and I was hoping to do some work with a bumblebee that lives in the Amazon region. Uh, and it was actually quite hard to find that uh, species. <laughs> Um, and in one of the stations that I was uh, working at the time, we happened to stumble these orchid bee nests that, that were basically nesting at the base of the buildings, uh, hmm. these pillars that uh, were at the base of the buildings. 
and that's how I discovered orchid bees. And I and I that was kind of a magical moment that I I became fascinated with them and started reading more about them and uh, learning more about their importance in the tropical region. So they're perhaps one of the most important insect pollinators in the mm. tropics. They pollinate thousands of thousands of species, not just orchids. They pollinate many other plant families. <laughs> And that, that was uh, kind of a, the, the beginning of my fascination uh, in my career uh, as a professional biologist studying these bees. That's excellent. Yeah, I think all it takes is seeing, I mean, at least a picture of an orchid bee to be completely enamored. I mean, they are jewels of the forest, so to speak. That's literal and <laughs> metaphorical. But, you know, there's a lot of different chunks you could bite off that topic. It is a very complex system. And as you mentioned, they pollinate a lot of different kinds of plants. And so how do you as a, a, a young burgeoning scientist decide which route to take in that? I mean, mentorship or reading the literature, I'm sure it's a combination of all those things. But how did you really start to focus to get to the point in which you actually have a career studying this stuff? Yeah. So, you know, as an undergrad, I even before I discover orchid bees and, and, and bees in general, um, I was pretty certain that I wanted to do uh, science as a, as, mm. as a career. You know, I, I, I was fascinated by neuroscience and, and was quite interested in, in learning more about neuroscience. I was also interested in, in communication and behavior of animals. Um, and then orchid bees kind of came and like they, they their natural history is <laughs> so fascinating and in particular this behavior we can talk more about it later of, of perfume collection behavior um kind of merged those two interests of yeah. behavior and neuroscience and actually right now we're doing some some work on the, on the brains of these bees <laughs> so it's been kind of like uh you know orchid bees kind of encapsulate these these phenomenal biology and, and natural history that poses a lot of interesting questions about how behavior evolves, what are the mechanisms that allow these behaviors to evolve, and, and so on. So so that, so that when I was an undergrad, I was pretty sure that I wanted to, to do a PhD, and it, it wasn't clear what that would be. And so towards the end of my undergrad, I discovered this system, and I decided to, to, to spend a year um, you know, between undergrad and grad school doing different projects. Um, I went to Brazil to work with, uh, uh, who's now a professor at uh, the University of California, San Diego, with James Nye, to study a different group of bees called the stingless bees. Mm. And, and that was quite an opening experience, too, to study behavior and communication in, in a highly social group of bees. And as I was doing that, I, I started to, like, kind of work on, on ideas that of, what I would like to do with orchid bees and being in Brazil during, during this internship with James and I, I decided to visit the different collections and libraries, mm. uh, uh, collections where they had orchid bees and, and specialized libraries where they had a lot of literature that I didn't have. <laughs> and I started to compile everything that has been published ever about orchid bees and kind of build a big library. Wow. And, and that slowly turned into a, a pretty big review that I, Ended up in, in a very obscure journal called nice. um, Bioda Bio Colombia. It's a nice journal that basically publishes species lists and any biological information about it. So I published this massive list of all the species of orchid bees that that are that are known, and everything that we know about 
their associations with flowers. Uh, for with orchids, that they use as, as perfume sources or any other food plants that they use. So it's quite a massive, boring <laughs> table, basically. It's like you a know. very table, but it's a very useful resource, and a lot of people cite it for that reason. Um, and that was kind of my first wow. sort of independent project that I did before my PhD. And, uh, you know, then the, the standard thing that I, I went through, I applied to grad school and ended up uh, joining a, a great program and, and, and decided to do my th- PhD thesis on, on the topic. Huh. What an amazing journey. It's rare you hear someone be like, I published, then went to grad school, which <laughs> is unique in and of itself. But yeah, what an important resource. And it's, it's those moments where that passion sort of drives it. And that's exciting to me because oftentimes you learn about the process and then the passion has to just kind of find its route. Sounds like that was really the guiding light the whole time. And what better way to start with just curiosity, compiling it for your own sake and then going, oh, well, no one's actually done this before. Maybe there's something to this. And I know for me as an ecologist, when I'm thinking about systems, the first thing I do is go look for what are these organisms using or who uses this organism? And that to me is an incredibly important resource that often gets ignored in, in big publishing realms these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, in a way, I, the way I did it is kind of backwards, right? Like they they always say, you know, you should always think about a big picture question and then go and do the research <laughs> or the literature search. I did it completely backwards. Uh, I was just fascinated by the natural history of this group of, of animals, and I just wanted to have it all in one table so I can look at it and 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 then ask questions by looking at the data. Um, and yeah, it's, it was my process. That's how I, I started with this. Incredible. What a journey. But the orchid bees themselves, I mean, that's the, like you said, the natural history is so fascinating, even on the surface level of what they're doing, let alone the intricacies of how it plays out. So for the listeners that aren't familiar with orchid bees, give a big picture. Like, what is it about these? You mentioned perfume, you mentioned sort of behavior and the way they're sensing things and utilizing things for their ecology. What is a big picture look at what an orchid bee's lifestyle is like, knowing that generalizations are necessary, but not always 100 <laughs> percent? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, orchid bees are um, just a standard group of bees in, in the sense that um, they uh, they're essentially what we call vegetarian wasps uh, mm. uh, bees evolve um, within a clay, within a group of, of, of Hymenoptera, uh, the order of Hymenoptera, that um, contains uh, carnivorous wasps. And, and there, there was this origin of, you know, from a common ancestor um, that specialized on feeding on pollen and, and nectar, and, and they became essentially vegetarian wasps. Love it. Um, and so there's about 25,000 species of bees worldwide. And there's perhaps the, the most familiar group of bees to the general audience here would be the curbiculate bees. This is a group of bees that contains the honeybees, yeah. where we get honey um, and we get pollination surfaces from them. It also contains the bumblebees. It contains also the tropical stingless bees. These are worldwide distributed tropical bees. And, and all those groups that I mentioned are are you social or truly social groups of bees that um, they have a queen and a set of workers and orchid bees are within that group hmm. um, and uh, orchid bees uh, traditionally they were thought to be solitary but it turns out that they're social and we've we, we've done a hmm. fair amount of work on that so we could talk about that later 
Um, but what makes ArcidBees a, a very unique and fascinating system is uh, that the male bees of every single species, so there's about 230 or so species, new species are described all the time, hmm. um, all 230 species or so, they, um, the males uh, have these very specialized structures to collect scents uh, from orchids, but also from other sources, such as fungi and decaying vegetation, oh. uh, bark exudates, and huh. resins, and so on. And what they do is they basically, the males spend their entire life uh, gathering these compounds from the environment, and they store them in these highly specialized structures in their hind legs. Uh, think of it as a pocket, like uh, the, the, the hind leg, this segment of the hind leg called the tibia um, has become really big and enlarged. And, it's, and it has a little opening in the posterior side where the male bees will store these volatile compounds that they acquire from, from the environment and accumulate them uh, through their life. And they're using then these compounds at a later time, they're using them for courtship display. So they are presenting or releasing these compounds uh, in the air in a very specialized uh, set of behaviors that um, then disperse or help disperse these compounds. And um, the chemical signal that they're emitting is uh, targeting females of their own species. So essentially, the male bees are gathering perfumes. Um, we, we like to use the word perfumes because they're acquired from the environment and they're not quite like pheromones that are okay. produced. Um, insects in general, you know, they use pheromones in all kinds of contexts, in particular mating behavior. Uh, but these orchid bees are basically acquiring things from the environment. So we call them perfume compounds. Hmm. And, and now we know that they are used in the context of courtship, and, and the females use that chemical information to decide whether they mate or not with a particular male. Wow. That is, I mean, one compound would be amazing, but the fact that it's a suite of compounds, and I'm sure there's some species-specific sort of interactions there with what and how broad the compounds are, but... You know, you mentioned that they use it in their lifetime. Are they a lot like other drones where it's a short lifetime for the male and they're just kind of there as sperm delivery and then you're done, sorry? Or is it a different kind of system where they're longer lived and doing more complex things as they as time goes by? Or what's it like? Yeah, so we, we know quite a bit about that, that aspect of their biology. So you're right that a lot of... Uh, species of animals, the males are, are very short-lived and they're often just, you know, needed at a particular time of the year when mating happens and they're not needed anymore. So they, they, they tend to be short-lived. Um, for example, the drones of honeybees, they, they don't survive much after mating. They, after they're, they're, they, they're done. Um, same thing happens with other other species of bees, such as bumblebees. The, the males are kind of short-lived and they, they don't last more than a few weeks, maybe a month. Hmm. Orchid bees are actually they're kind of long-lived. Uh, we we are able to keep uh, orchid bees alive in in our lab or in in a, in a large cage outside for up to six months. Um, females are longer-lived; they can live wow. up to nine nine ten months. 
but males, yeah, they're they're kind of long lived for compared to other insects and other bees, huh. and and it really, ha I think it has to do with the fact that they spend a huge amount of time gathering these compounds. Uh, they're not uh, easily found, and it's not like they just go to one place and get them. They really need to forage for them, and they hmm. they need to acquire. Um, a lot of, or they need to visit a lot of sources in order to get enough for for mating, for, for being attracted to a female. Um, and we know this because we've done a lot of uh, studies where we, we we look at the variation, how much perfume a male males have in a population, and the great majority of males have very little. It turns out they're you know they just emerge and they're just gathering stuff and and or they emerge you know a few weeks earlier and they they're just in the process of gathering compounds. Uh, and occasionally, you know, once uh, when every 20 or 30 males that you look at, uh, you'd find one that has a lot of compounds on, uh, on, on his legs. And, and those are presumably the males that have higher mating success in the population. Uh -huh. um, so they are kind of uh, unusual in the sense that they're, sh they're, they're kind of uh, long lived. In, uh, and yeah, maybe the, the, uh, through the process of you know, natural selection, their, their lifespan um, was extended because of, the, of these need. For, for acquiring enough compounds for, for mating. Right. So on that note, I mean, it sounds like a form of sexual selection, right? Is that where the sort of bigger theory kind of falls on to this group of organisms? Like, yeah, if you're strong enough to go out and collect a wider suite of compounds, then boy, you might be a good mate. Exactly. Yeah, so so there are multiple mechanisms, I guess, to, to explain how exaggerated uh, displays evolve, right? Like uh, you have the fancy feathers of a uh, Indian peafowl or, or the very loud songs of a frog or bird species or perfume collection in the case of orchid bees. These are all traits that are only present on the males. Um, and uh, the, our working hypothesis for this is that females are the ones um, imposing the selection so it's sexual selection going from females choosing a certain trait on, on the males in order for mating to happen it could also be uh, as an additional aspect which is sometimes hard to distinguish which is mate recognition so if you have a diverse community of bee species which is the case with orchid bees you could go to certain places in the amazon region where you have 70 70 species of bees and they all kind of look very similar <laughs> how they can green um and so so if a female needs to find a male to mate that female needs to make two decisions the first one is to find a male of the right species and then second she needs to find to decide okay is that an appropriate male to mate with so there's these two aspects of, of, of mate choice, I guess, that, that are important and, and hard to disentangle from one another, which is recognition of a mate and then selection of the mate. Um, so, and I and we actually think that these two two processes or these two aspects of, of, the, of the mating behavior are quite important in shaping the behavior. So, hmm. as you mentioned before, there's uh, a lot of species specificity and, and there's perfume compounds so we if we look at the chemistry of the perfumes across different species we find that all the species uh, are very unique each all the individuals that belong to a species have 
roughly the same set of compounds. Wow. Some some bees have more than others because there's variation and you know they they they, they were collecting perfumes for a longer time, but they all kind of collect the same set of compounds. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, um, differentiation between species. And, and, and we think that's, uh, we've done a lot of analysis showing that this actually evolves incredibly fast. So if you, if you imagine you have an ancestral species that, that becomes two separate species, very quickly after that happens or when that's happening, these perfume mixtures become different. Wow. And that presumably is a function of, of, of that mate recognition aspect, right? That you need to find mates of the right species. So you need to be different from all the other species. Um, so natural selection would favor your perfume to become distinct and unique and separate from all the other species. But at the same time, females are choosy and they're only selecting males to mate with based on males that have the right combination of compounds and they have lots of it, for example. And so, so sexual selection is operating at that level. So it's, it's complex, it's complex in that sense that it's not easy to separate the two aspects of it. Yeah, that's, I'm <laughs> just thinking of experimental design and my palms get sweaty of like, oh gosh, are we doing this right? But, you know, one thing meeting you all and getting a chance to learn from you all at the Orchid Bee Conference that we met at was, it was just, it brought into perspective how poor our sense of smell truly is for a lot of different compounds. And, and you know, if we were to be able to sample I would guess we'd get some sense off of them, but like the complex mixture is something that probably is more exciting to be near neurons than it is say a mammal that doesn't need to know what that smell is or identify it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so insects in general have uh, a very developed sense of smell. I mean, we mammals as well sure. have pretty good sense of smell and basically all, all animals. And even if you go outside of animals, there, there's chemical communication happening in every organism, essentially. So it's one of the most ancient and, and widespread forms of communication. Um, but insects are very um, diverse in their in their approach or the, their, the adaptations that they have evolved in for, for the detection of smell. They use their antenna, of course, but they can also detect um, um, other compounds like taste and, and so on other parts of the body. For example, they can taste through their legs. Um, and so, so they really have a, a, a huge number of sensory um, systems uh, that, that enable them to detect different smells. And one, one thing that we are particularly interested on to study is the olfactory genes. These are a set of genes that are expressed, are present uh, only in, mostly in their antenna. Mm. Um, and these are a, a very diverse family of genes. So without getting into details, for example, orchid bees, we know they have something like 180 different olfactory genes. Oh. Um, it's not as many as we humans have. Huh. Um, uh, we, we, we mammals have a, a lot more. But uh, each of those genes would respond to a different set of compounds. Some are responding to a lot of things. Some are responding to only a few things. And we've done a few projects where we study how these olfactory genes help the bees detect certain smells. And, and we, we found that at least in one particular case, one particular set of species, the olfactory system is highly, highly tuned to the compounds 
that that species uh, collects as part of their perfume. So, so there's a lot of evolution happening at the sensory level to accommodate the compounds that are preferred by that species. That makes sense. Wow, yeah. But it also makes sense in the context of something you mentioned earlier about how rapid some of these things can evolve. You know, you get a mutation in that suite of genes or a couple of them, I'd assume that will drastically or has the potential to drastically change which compounds excite the neurons and what they're detecting, that sort of thing. And so you get a mutation technically, you know, that female's now looking for a different type of male. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so so the orchid bee system is quite interesting because the male bees uh, are collecting these compounds using their sense of smell, right? Like, so that's what we call the male traits, right? Like the, mm-hmm. you have the, the perfume itself is in a way driven or mediated by whatever the bee can sense from the environment. But at the same time, the same gene or the same olfactory genes are used by the females to choose which male to, to mate with. So as you, you indicated, yeah, there could be like a, a genetic change in some of those genes and simultaneously you could change the preference by the females and the trait of the males. Um, wow. And so that we actually have a, a, a study that we published where we kind of reached that conclusion that there's this one olfactory gene that has changed very quickly in one species and that we think change rapidly the female preference, what the females look for and what the males have. Um, of course, it's more complicated than that. Because, you know, female preferences could be mediated by other, you know, what, how they process things in their brain. But at least just looking at that, at that rapid change in an olfactory gene, um, it, it gave us the idea that that could be something that, that could happen and that could promote the evolution of a new species uh, and that, that becomes separate by, by just simple changes in the olfactory system. Sure. It's kind of like when you say, oh, in geological time, a million years is relatively short, right? And it's all in the context. It's a major component of how this system might work, but biology is by its very nature extremely complex and confusing <laughs> but the the thing that really excites me some from about the system from like the plant-based perspective is is the orchid bees kind of fly in the face of the traditional bee story of the the worker going out collecting honey or, or nectar really and pollen to feed offspring and build this colony in this system you have males collecting perfume to impress females and i'm I'm leading you on here because I know that this is a big part of it, but that has to change the way the plants then present themselves. Or at least, you know, you've got something that's going to be very reliable for periods of time visiting your flowers. I could see a system how that would kind of snowball into catering more and more to that. And so what do you generally see understanding that they visit a wide variety of plants? What would constitute like an orchid bee flower like what are they attracted to are there traits that are selected for more i mean how does that system play out from the plant based perspective yeah yeah so that 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 is a uh, quite an interesting aspect of, of the system is that in the tropical region uh, tropical america um we know at least of about a thousand different species including orchids but also other plant families like aroids um, um, some Solanaceae, uh, some other, uh, some other Euphorbiaceae plants that essentially they 
stop producing any floral rewards, right? Like they, they no longer produce nectar or pollen that is attractive to pollinators, but they only produce these scent compounds. So, so the, the type of compounds that male bees are looking for are quite diverse. They collect a huge number of things, um, but they all kind of fall into two major cl- compound classes. The mm. first one is the terpenoids. So these includes monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes, and the second class would be the aromatic compounds or phenylpropanoids. Um, and these are very common types of chemicals produced by plants and fungi, bacteria, all kinds of organisms produce them. But plants are pretty good at producing a lot of these compounds, um, and even for different purposes, such as defending against herbivores or defending against other competing hmm. plants. Um, but essentially, the, the plants have uh, a number of, of plant uh, lineages have evolved this adaptation to not produce any other floral rewards that would attract other bees or other pollinators, but only producing these highly volatile, very smelly compounds in the flowers that essentially become the rewards um, themselves. So the bees go there to collect those compounds. So they're attracted uh, to those compounds that they actually collect. So it's a mutualism in the sense that both the bees and the plants receive a benefit. Mm. And uh, the, the best example of this is orchids. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the, the famous uh, group of, of plants that have evolved this adaptation is, is a, a group of orchids um, that some of your listeners might know. Uh, for example, uh, the Stanhopia or the Caracetum or the Gongora. These are very beautiful looking flowers. They're <laughs> Uh, showy, but also they produce a huge amount of smell. Um, and they have these specialized um, petals, they're called the labellum, that um, they essentially have an entire layer of cells that uh, is there to only produce scent compounds. And, and they, once these flowers open, they, they, they really uh, produce a huge um, amount of these compounds and the bees show up in a matter of seconds basically or minutes um, they're incredibly good at uh, detecting these compounds and in the process of visiting these flowers they they pollinate them um, and so yeah I'm happy to go more in the details of how all that happens yeah yeah it is kind of weird to think because you know I've touched a lot of scented flowers before and like maybe you detect a little bit of something on your hand and I know through some heavy chemistry or, or a lot of processing, we can extract those scents. But you mentioned earlier on that the bees will visit and scrape. Like, what are they oily? I mean, is can you look and see like, oh, that's definitely going to be an orchid bee flower? Or do you really have to sit and wait, um, you know, in that sort of way? How are the bees getting the scent off? Yeah, so the the, the, the compounds are, are basically released to the atmosphere, right? Like they're, they're just... There are these very volatile compounds, but some of those compounds actually sit basically before they volatilize, um, they sit on the surface of the flower. Um, sometimes some flowers produce such a concentrated amount of these compounds that these compounds crystallize. So you can see crystals wow. forming on the surface of the flower, um, but that's unusual. Rather, <laughs> is a, a very 
thin layer that it's it's hard to see. Sure. Um, and I, I don't know if you, anyone can really be that good at just smelling <laughs> a flower and say, "Oh, this is a this is a Yugoslavian bee flower," sure. <laughs> because it, as as we mentioned before, the orchids are collecting these co- combinations of compounds, and they're very picky about the compounds that they like and don't like. So, so just because you you could detect the smell in a flower, it doesn't necessarily mean that an orchid bee will like it, and it has to be the right compound in combination with other compounds that the bee would accept. Um, they're very picky about it. So from your perspective, this is probably more of a science history question than a biological one. If they're visiting thousands of flowers, why aren't we calling them like spathophyllum bees or aeroid bees? Like, is it just the fact that orchids were so charismatic, people were paying more attention to them, happened to notice a lot of bees at certain species or genera, and boom, that's the guilty by association kind of thing? Yeah. Well, it actually, it all goes back to Darwin. Um, He, you know obviously uh, wrote The Origin of Species in 1859. Um, and then in th- three years later, uh, after that, that quite amazing piece of work that changed the, the, the history of science, uh, he focused his work on uh, studying pollination um, in orchids. Um, and so, you know, famously, Darwin did the, the Beagle voyage uh, around the world, basically. But he didn't actually visit any truly tropical uh, lowland rainforest mm-hmm. that would allow him to, to witness firsthand orchid bees. So I don't think he actually, in his lifetime, he, he saw orchid bees himself or orchids uh, growing in those areas. So it was re- after, he, you know, he returned to to England that he basically just uh, corresponded with scientists all over the world. And one such scientist that he corresponded with was um, a botanist who was the director of the botanical garden in Trinidad, Hermann Kruger, who had uh, orchid bees and orchids basically growing right there in, in, his, in his backyard. And he corresponded quite a bit with Darwin about this system. And when Darwin was writing his book, his orchid book, he essentially wrote a whole chapter uh, on euglossin pollinated orchids. Hmm. And at the time, the observations that, that were sent to him um, by Herman Kruger he kind of inferred that, you know, the bees are just going there to visit these orchids to eat something out of them. So he, Herman Kruger, saw these male bees scraping the surface of the flowers. They were collecting perfume compounds and storing them in the hind legs. But he just uh, interpreted that as just the bees were scratching the surface to eat something out of them. Hmm. Um, and so it was really until 1969 uh, uh, or so that a group of scientists uh, uh, in Florida, um, uh, Callaway Dodson, uh, Bob Dressler, um, Norris Williams, and others, uh, decided to, to get to the bottom of why is it that these male bees, or the, well, these orchid bees are showing up to these flowers? Are they eating something? Are they getting something else? And so in that really main study that they publish in, in the journal Science, they analyze the chemical composition of the floral scent. So they capture the smell coming out of the flower and with various methods that now basically are routine, we do it in our lab all the time, you could analyze 
the composition of the molecules present in that smell of the flower. Um, and they found that there were, you know, these major compounds such as cineal, this is eucalyptal, and, and other molecules that um, they could just buy, they could synthesize them or buy them. And then they did experiment. Okay, if we take this pure extract or this pure synthetic version of this compound cineal and take it to the field, we should be able to see orchids showing up. And sure enough, that's what they did. Uh, they, they flew... Bob Dressler to, uh, to Panama, or they shipped the compounds to Bob Dressler, who was in Panama, and he put uh, uh, these cineal in a piece of paper, uh, and orchids show up in a matter of seconds. Uh, <laughs> it's just incredible. Uh, and, and this is a, now a routine thing that you could do to sample the diversity of bees in any place in, in the tropical America. Yeah, it's so fun to watch. People go out and sample for them, having seen a small sample of, of how it's done. But the other thing is, is like, I always forget male bees don't sting. They don't have the ovipositor that's been modified. And so people are just grabbing. I'm like, what do you do? Oh, OK, we're good. It's just males. So it's kind of convenient, I guess, if you're going to be working with bees, work with the, the stingless males. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's quite interesting to see because the, 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 they're so driven to uh, obtain these compounds like they, they even lose their sort of ability to see or to go to see predators once it's <laughs> like they become like so focused and so driven to collect so you could hold them with your fingers no problem and of course you won't get stunned <laughs> it's a magical moment but you know from the plant's perspective the goal again putting words in mouths of that can't speak but the goal is for pollination and you mentioned a couple genera of orchids specifically uh like gongora for instance that have just the wildest most elaborate looking flower that you know i stand on your head you still don't quite understand what's going on and what does pollination look like in some of these orchids like how do you go from a male trying to collect scents to now we have the next generation of of seeds forming yeah so so orchids have um these uh a number of adaptations that, that people believe uh contributed to their diversification. Orchids are thought to be one of the most or the most diverse plant family, you know, something between 20, 25,000 species worldwide. Um, and they, they have these, uh, the one adaptation that, that has been um, mentioned as a, a possible driver of their very specialized adap adaptations for pollination is the pollinarium. So orchids, um, have this uh, modification where all the pollen grains produced by a flower are packaged in a in a little solid package called the pollinarium. So instead of being pollen that is released to the air or, or, or scattered through the body of a bee and then transferred between flowers, essentially the bees go there to either find food, you know, in the case of other orchids where they, they produce nectar, or in the case of sexually deceptive orchids that, you know, uh, orchids that, that mimic female insects, female bees, and the males go try to mate with a female, but in <laughs> an orchid. Or in the case of eugolosin pollinated orchids where they produce scent, so the males go there. And um, once the bees are landing on, on the, they land on the, on the flowers, they, they go straight to the labellum, which is this modified petal that is producing 
a lot of sense. In the case of Gongora, the labellum is up. Um, so, so a lot of orchids have the labellum down as a, as a sort of a landing platform. Mm. But in this case, the labellum is up, um, and the bees basically have to cl- cl- uh, sort of climb or cling upside down, hold themselves uh, from the labellum as they scrape the the compounds. It's kind of an awkward position for the bees to hold, but they, you know, they manage to kind of hold themselves in place and then scrape the surface with the front legs, take short flights, take the scent, put it back on their hind legs and land again on the labellum. And as they're doing this thing, they may lose their grip. It's quite a waxy, slippery surface. And in the process of doing that, they, they fall down and, and there's these two little petals. They're tiny. Uh, the, the other petal is the labellum. These two petals basically hold like a, some sort of toboggan or like a like a slide, and the beak basically falls in place. And as he tries to wiggle, you know, himself out, slides down, and then removes the pollinarium. And the pollinarium is, is this you know packet of uh, that contains all the pollen grains, and he has a little structure that is basically like adhesive tape. It's like very sticky, and that basically sticks. To the body of the bee and it, it, it could be attached to some part of the bee it could be the back or the antenna or the leg depending on the orchid species and the bee doesn't care at all about the pollinarium it's just stuck there like a, like you know like a taking a, a free ride and the bee does his business of collecting the the uh, the scents moves to another flower to do the same thing and then in the process of doing that it falls again and then leaves a pollinarium so, so it's a very complicated uh, mechanism for uh, for pollination and that's just gongora for <laughs> example the bucket orchid which is the genus corianthus or is it even more bizarre so you have this labellum evolving to this giant very large pool that um and there's this separate uh, set of glands that 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 secrete like water basically and fill up the pool and then on the border of this this bucket, um, the flower produces scents, and the male bees are collecting scents from these. And as they're doing that, they they lose their their grip and they fall into the pool of water. They cannot fly because their wings are wet. And the only way out of this is through a tiny little hole. And as the bee goes through that hole, the pollinarium is stuck to their backs. And, and that's how the, 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 the pollination process begins. They have to do that again with another flower of the same species to deliver the, the pollinarium. Um, you also have the, the catacetum markets, which um, um, are fascinating in, in that there's... Um, is the, one of the few groups of orchids that are sexually dimorphic. So you have male bee, male flowers, sorry, and female flowers. And the same thing, the males are attracted by the scent. And as they're scraping the scent, they, they activate a trigger mechanism that uh, releases the pollinarium. And the pollinarium basically just flies, uh, shoots uh, out of the flower and then hits the bee on the right uh, place in the back usually and then the pollinaria gets stuck uh, to their backs and, and and they have to do again uh, that process to visit another female flower and then uh, leave the the pollinarium and, and, and affect uh, the pollination 
I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn for you, though, but like I, I don't think I'd ever get bored of watching that happen, no matter how many times or how familiar I got with any of those systems. Seeing that play out in the wild or even in captivity would just blow my mind every time. And boy, you mentioned it's a mutualism. I know both parties are benefiting, but that's got to be one of the like one more trick. And I don't know if we could call it that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is quite fascinating uh, uh, system. And. We know quite a bit about the the evolution of how that evolves, right? Like you, I mean, you, you you kind of alluded to the idea that, like, okay, how is that possible? How how can we how can we have such a elaborate system evolving, right? And and what we know is that you know the the bees, the group of of orchid bees, is quite it's a little bit ancient, not not terribly old, but ancient in the sense that you know they're. They share a common ancestor about 45 million years ago, hmm. um, and the, but the orchids are actually a little bit younger, um, substantially oh. younger than than the bees themselves. So we we know that the the lineages that evolve these adaptation for eucalyptus and pollination appear a, about 12 or so million years after the bees first evolve. So what we think about the system or what happened is that the bees basically were collecting these compounds from the environment, from uh, flowers of other species, from fungi and so on. And then orchids evolve or exploited essentially these, these uh, pollinator group by, by doing what they're very good at, which is producing combinations of compounds to attract pollinators and then luring them to, 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 transfer their, their their pollen for free well not for free in exchange yeah. of some uh, chemical compounds and 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 the, the reason why we know this is not just the, the fact that the bees are older than the orchids but also because when you look at the entire pool of compounds that orchid bees are collecting as a whole you know if you look at um, all the different bee lineages out there. Uh, we, we sampled about 100 so far, so mm. almost, you know, close to 50%, but not quite 40%. Um, when you look at all the compounds that these bees are collecting, it's a huge diversity of molecules. They're visiting all kinds of sources and collecting all kinds of weird compounds that we don't even have a name for. <laughs> we don't know the structure, but we, we, can, we can analyze them and see, well, yeah, this is a new compound belongs to this class of compounds, but nobody has ever seen this compound before. So they're collecting a lot of stuff out there. Now, if you look at what the orchids as a whole are producing, they're actually producing a tiny little corner of that set of compounds that the bees collect. Hmm. So they're only producing two sets of compounds, the, the monoterpene compounds, the sesquiterpene compounds, these are the terpenoids and the aromatics that I mentioned earlier. But when you look at the, the whole list of compounds that they produce, they're not that diverse. It's actually quite a, a small subset of compounds. And what they're doing is they're producing them in different combinations. Mm. And those different combinations of, of scent compounds attract very species-specific um, set of bees um, as pollinators. So, yeah. I'll stop there for now. Oh, that's amazing to think about sort of how this process plays out over evolutionary time but you know when you start to branch out to other groups like aeroids i mean an aeroid flower is a 
it's still complex, but it's not orchid level complexity. Uh, do they do the bees really change behavior? I mean, are they almost like their own form of taxonomist when they show up to a different genera or even family of plants? They're like, okay, we approach this one this way, and this one we have to go from this angle because I mean, a gongora is a very different beast than a a mushroom cap or a piece of bark exudate or or an aeroid inflorescence. Yeah, so I think they the, the bees really care about what they get in terms of their their shopping list of compounds yeah. think about it um they'll they'll go to basically anywhere that <laughs> to go and and yeah they'll their bees in general are very good at navigating complex <laughs> environments and and figuring things out you know like they'll learn fairly quickly um and so they they'll you know when it's very fascinating to watch when, when you're in the field and you could you could set up these different types of orchids as they're blooming and, and observe the, the behavior of the bees and at the beginning they're very worried and they they kind of um, circle the inflorescence uh, very carefully to i think maybe to look for predators and they start approaching and landing on the surface and then and, and all guided by their sense of smell. So they're, they're very good at finding the precise source of, of scent. And they, they'll find the most concentrated hmm. part of uh, the, the flower that produces the most concentrated scent um, using their antenna. And then they scrape that surface and they learn how to like navigate these environment. And that would take uh, between 10 and 15 minutes. And and as they as they get more and more used to it, they kind of go in and in a zone basically and they just collect as much as they can and then they leave um but yeah it is quite different uh when when a bee visits uh, you know one of these orchids uh or uh, an aroid but essentially at the end of the day what they care about is acquiring their their shopping list of chemical compounds that would uh, facilitate or enable them finding a mate nice so really just keeping their eye on the prize and being as adaptable as necessary in those moments when it's hey it's here yeah, exactly. Wow. And and what amazes me most is like zooming back out and looking at your career, your colleagues, like more than a lot of other systems to really get a full handle on this and to, to follow every thread that curiosity sparks and, and the next paper sparks. It's it's amazing the challenges you have to overcome in technique. I mean, you have to understand natural history. You have to be in the right place at the right time, have some idea of the plants you're looking at, the bees you're looking at. But then an understanding of like neurology and, and genetic components, so the molecular side of things. I mean, you really kind of span this big picture natural history, but then like intense molecular style lab work and understanding how genes are excited or how neurons are excited. I mean, it, it's got to be both uh, amazing and daunting. Obviously, spending the time helps, but you, you span a wide range of specialties within the sciences to study this system. That's right. Yeah, and I, and I, in a way, I, I guess I consider myself a sort of a generalist when it comes to like using different uh, approaches and techniques, which comes to a cost, of course. And, sure. You know, so <laughs> good. You could do in any any one field, and and we're kind of combining different uh, fields: the field of chemical ecology and evolutionary biology, and now we're looking into the brains of these bees or, or their sensory systems. Um, so yeah, it is it is quite daunting. The the nice thing about it is that you could you know you you can collaborate with other scientists, mm -hmm. and and then within the lab we had we have we had different students and postdocs doing different projects, and and they they all kind of they're the ones who really specialize in one approach or one technique, 
and I'm the one kind of, kind of looking at all these different things. And then sometimes it's, it's challenging for me to to follow all the details that, that you know, because sometimes it, it gets quite complicated and, and, and challenging. But um, for me as a scientist, I, I, I think I, I will always go back to the natural history to find inspiration and to find interesting questions. Um, and at, at core, I guess I would say I am an evolutionary biologist mm. and I really care about the understanding the evolution, you know, at the organismal level, at the molecular level, uh, but but that's what keeps me kind of in sort of more or less in the same direction. Sure, sure. Yeah, you gotta gotta keep track of a lot of threads. But that's cool though. In the context of like a lot of the emails I get, I get a lot of people that are like, I really love this idea, but I my specialties in chemistry and my specialties in physics. I feel like I don't you know I don't want to go back to school for this. But labs like yours are a great example that hey, if this is interesting to you. Ask the chemistry question, ask the neurological or behavioral question, ask the genetic question and find people that, you know, if that's where you want to go, are able to kind of take these different threads and tie it into really interesting natural history stories. I mean, you don't have to be just a bee biologist or a botanist to make your mark on fields like this. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we, you know, we've come maybe full circle in some areas in, or in some in some respects that you know we technology becomes more and more specialized and, and you know inevitably you as a scientist you have to become specialized but a lot of the, the techniques that we use like molecular some molecular biology or you know sequencing dna sequencing genomes now it's relatively easy to do a lot of those things so you could take advantage of the fact that is accessible and relatively easy to learn these things that you could you could integrate more you could mm. ask bigger broader questions that that integrate different fields and I, I i think that's a that's an approach on itself that that could be very rewarding when you when you combine different approaches to to answer one question sometimes like your your question is how does this work and, <laughs> and that might involve yeah physics chemistry molecular biology in other fields yeah yeah well i guess if there's one thing we can recommend to everyone listening that wants to get involved is whatever your angle is just be ready to chase funding <laughs> <laughs> pitch that idea to the right funders yeah exactly <laughs> well dr ramirez this has been absolutely fascinating uh man we could have a whole podcast just dedicated to orchid bees and the systems that they get involved in but if people want to learn more about the work you're doing and the work of your lab and colleagues where do you recommend they go looking to find more well they can visit uh, our website um, all our publications are available there some are uh, free access in, in their corresponding journals but um but you could find them all basically in our website and we have a, a fair amount of of um information there um and i'm happy to answer any questions uh, related to the science via email. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. And thank you for enlightening this amazing system and like bringing the complexities to light because I love a more complex story. The easy stories, whatever, we can tell those. But this stuff is just what fuels curiosity and passion. And, and I really appreciate all the effort you and your colleagues put into trying to understand it all. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been great pleasure. Of course, my pleasure. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and keep up the amazing work.
All right. Amazing stuff. I can't get my head wrapped around the complexity of what we know about this, let alone all of the amazing things just over the horizon waiting to be discovered about orchid bees and the plants they visit. I thank Dr. Ramirez for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, please check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, because that's where I post all of the links relevant to each discussion each and every week. While you're there, you can find many different ways to support this show. As I already mentioned at the beginning, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, but you can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. All of them contribute. All of them help keep the show up and running. And thank you to everyone who supported it to date. I really appreciate it. Speaking of support, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Theo. Theo signed up at the producer credit level over at Patreon, so they are doing the max each and every month to ensure the show has a future. Thanks again, Theo. And of course, thank you to every patron I have. But that is it for this week. As always, make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. And in the meantime, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.